This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season, we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. We're about to play a recording from the National Disciple Making Forum featuring Freedom in Christ Ministries. Their ministry helps Christians take hold of their freedom in Christ. And one form of freedom is finding freedom from addiction. And that's why we want you to know about Marcus D. Carvalho's resource called Untangling Addiction. It's available for free download at discipleship.org slash ebooks. It's basically a disciple who happens to be a medical professional's take on addiction from a scientific standpoint. It's very interesting content, very unique, and you can download it for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Today's content comes from Freedom in Christ Ministries and their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Discipleship Counseling. The episode is called Mental Strongholds, featuring Dr. Neil T. Anderson, Reverend Dan Stutt, and Jan Turner. Take a listen. I, uh, I've been to Singapore about seven times, and... I think I witnessed something there that, to me, is so unusual. Because if you go to Asia, you have to understand how much ancestor worship is a part of their whole culture. And uh, that's why they venerate age much more than we do here. I've had Korean students who graduate from seminary with no hope of being a pastor until they're 40. I mean, it's that that kind of thing. And... um, I was at this big Assembly of God church in uh, Singapore, and uh, the senior pastor was, it was the biggest church in Singapore at the time, and the senior pastor was old, I mean, he was a mature man, older man, and greatly respected, and he sat through the whole conference, and at the podium uh, was a signage for altar calls, uh, deliverance that way, rededication in front, and salvation. So, I mean, as people come forward, they would tell them to go, and there's a little sign to do it. And uh, so I preached there Sunday and, uh, morning, and he got up and said, boy, I've really learned something this week. I don't have to shout out the devil. And went on like that there for quite a while. I just found that absolutely amazing for a man in an Asian culture to be that honest and transparent in a pulpit. That, that, I've never forgotten that. It's just so unusual, to be honest with you, because it's very hard, you know, and you don't shame anybody over there. I mean, it's a shame culture. And if, if, uh, it's, if you go to Asia, I'm being very generic here, but by and large, how many people in Asia will lie to save face? All of them. It's part of their culture. And, and, uh, and forgiving mom and dad that's really tough because that means you'd have to say they did something wrong. And boy, they've been raised not to do that. I mean, it's really the part, you don't speak against the older generation and a lot of respect for it. Uh, Can I ask you a question here and answer it generally? Um, She uh, was involved over there with Campus Crusade for Christ. By the way, Campus Crusade for Christ, now crew, as you well know, um, sponsored all my trips over there. And one time they had all their Asian Directors from China, they oversaw it all, sat through the whole week and, uh, and uh, took me out for dinner the last night. And their whole question was, how do we get America to understand what you are teaching? It's a good question. It really is. I said, there's no way you can assuage this, folks, how much Western rationalism and naturalism in your educational system has conditioned your mind to see the world differently than the rest of the world. I mean, it does, folks. The worldview that people have in Latin America and Africa is not like yours. And if you don't know that, <laughs> one of the best books I ever read years ago is Filipino Spirit World. And uh, it was an American missionary who did one term in the Philippines and came back, and that was his actual dissertation. And, uh, but what he said about the Philippines, you could say about Latin America and Africa and Indonesia, anywhere you go how he went over there with his Western worldview, led people to Christ. People would come to Christ. They'd come to the church for major issues, weddings, you know, funerals, all that kind of stuff. But if they wanted personal guidance, they went back to the quack doctor. It's called syncretism. And because um, weren't, we weren't offering that to them. Isn't that crazy? 
And uh, I've just seen that really all over the world. It's really kind of sad. But uh, you came back and you got a degree in uh, as a psychiatric nurse and uh, become disillusioned with the medication. Well, I think probably everybody in this room is, <laughs> for that matter. I said, taking a pill to cure your body is commendable, but taking a pill to cure your soul is deplorable. And God help us to know the difference for that. And the problem that we're dealing with, something like depression, if you go into your regular doctor and he correctly diagnoses depression, he's got 10 minutes, what's he going to do? He's going to write you out a prescription. I don't blame him. I mean, that's all the, he can do, basically. He doesn't have time to take somebody through the steps. The doctors that I know of that are on our board um, uh, love what we're doing because they know that majority of their people are sick for psychosomatic reasons, and they can't cure that. But only the church, I think, can. I think, really, that's our responsibility is to take care of I love medicine. I think it's great. Psychiatry is a different thing. I've had a psychiatrist on our board, Judy King's husband, was a psychiatrist, and uh, he loves what we're doing. And uh, he sat in with us up in, El, uh, uh, where was it, Calgary. And I said, come up and join us, because it was all new to them. Uh, he was a doctor in the northern provinces of Canada, and so he worked with First Nation people up there. If you don't know this about Indian population, they're spiritists. That's their background. And uh, New Agers love them. They think they're the, the best. And... Uh, so he had involved, he got some demonic issues and that kind of stuff, didn't really know what to do with it. So they heard me speak, and so they came out to Calgary, and I said, just sit in some sessions. And he heard us interview a young man who was hearing voices, was honest with us, told us he just plagued with no mental peace. And, and Steve said, I want to sit in this one because I know what he needs. He sat in, he didn't know what he needed. God set the young man free. And it just revolutionized his thinking because after... He came back as a missionary, finished his residency in psychiatry. And, uh, and basically what psychiatrists do is they write out medications. And the problem is there's no way to precisely measure brain chemistry. Are you aware of that? There is no way. In fact, you have 40 different types of neurotransmitters and 95% of them are in your body. Only 5% is in your brain. Did you know that? I had all of our staff read uh, Prozac Backlash several years ago when it first came out. It's written by a psychiatrist, teaches part-time at Harvard, so he's not anti-medication. Neither am I. But what he's opposed to is what I'm opposed to is the knee-jerk response. Oh, you're depressed. Here, take this. And um, the whole industry of, of SSRIs, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, is kind of past its course. Do you know why? It's not selective. The brain adapts to those kind of issues. And uh, if, so if you increase the serotonin, you're probably going to decrease the dopamine. And uh, it's just an adjustment factor. And by the way, unless you're a medical doctor, don't give medical advice. <laughs> I don't do that. If you're a good disciple, stay out of that. You can get sued. It's just not something we should do. Uh, but I've had a lot of people go through the steps and say, I don't think I need to take that anymore. I said, if you're going to go off your medication... Talk to your doctor. But if you do go off, it's your choice. A medication, a prescription is not a mandate. It's permission. Right? So it's your choice whether you want to take it or not. But if you've been on an, uh, an antipsychotic or uh, antidepressants for some time, please do not advise or encourage anybody to go off cold turkey. Your brain is adapted to that. What will actually happen is... Uh, you'll get withdrawal symptoms from that medication. It'll feel like the symptoms are back, and you'll be forced you to go back on the medication again. And that's exactly what he said in that book, Prozac Backlash. And uh, so I'm discouraged like you are of the simplicity of, here, fix it this way kind of a thing. And, uh, but, I'm, but to say that, am I against medication? Absolutely not. Food's medication, for that matter. Uh, where did Jan go? Jan still here? Jan, I want you to share first. Jan is uh, our state uh, coordinator, director, and uh, lend her husband. And uh, Jan has been just a blessing to us. I I'll introduce you with a, a neat story. Jan called me about what, this summer, wasn't it? Come here. And uh, said, there's a guy in the bondage breaker that, that wants to meet you. I said, really? Who's that? In fact, it's in the introduction to the bondage breaker, I think, in the book. And I'll tell that quick story, and then you can take it from there because okay. it's part of your story. But 
Um, this guy was a principal of a high school, a superintendent of a school district in the middle of California. Had a Bible study in his home, pillar of the community. And uh, was having all these night terrors and visions and just demonic type stuff. And so he called me and I said, yeah, I'll give you a Saturday morning or something if you drive down. It's about a six-hour drive. So I'm going to send you a set of tapes first. Listen to them on the way down. So he walked in my office and handed me the tapes. He said, they're all blank. I heard his story and led him through the steps to freedom. Voices were gone. Went back home. Listened to the same set of tapes all the way home. <laughs> Have you ever sat down sometime and read a chapter in your Bible and asked yourself, what did you just read? I know that's happened to you. And you read it again. What did you just read? Do you ever happen reading the sport page like that? Well, that guy looked me up after 40 years and we had dinner together in Murfreesboro. It was really fun because he'd done very well from that time on. But it was such a unique story because I've seen people who can't read the bond. I had two Telba students could not read the bondage breaker. They're supposed to turn in assignments every week and they weren't turning it in. So I, one was a student body president. And... Um, I said, we'll go through the steps in the class and you'll be able to handle all the work in the next day. And uh, so some things are growing in people's minds that, you know, I don't know. But Jan, it's been such a blessing. Share some of your experiences. Thank you, Neil. We're really excited you're all here with us. Um, first, I'll share just a little of how the message and ministry of Freedom in Christ has impacted my life personally And then I want to share you a couple of stories of others um, that I've had the blessing to work with. Um, I was raised by two parents who loved each other, loved my brothers and me. We were blessed. We went to church every Sunday. We laughed together. We worked hard together on our chicken ranch. We whined about that from time to time, but (laughs) it was a good life. Um, I remember when I was about nine, uh, family friends visited, and when it was about time for them to leave, they asked if I could go back home with them. They lived, we were in Northern California, they lived in Southern California, right near Disneyland. And so I was so excited to think that I would get to go on this first trip away from the family. I was, you know, this was a big girl thing to do, and then my my family would come down a few days later and we would all go to Disneyland. So while there, they took me to a movie one afternoon. Uh, in the movie theater, a stranger sat next to me and began to molest me. I don't know how long it, go- it went on. I don't remember his face. I don't remember his voice. I don't remember much else other than I have a very clear picture of the theater itself and the scene in the movie, one scene in that particular movie that I remember. Um, that experience, now, the, the thing that was most interesting when I think about it is that I told no one. For whatever reason, I did not believe I could tell anybody. As in my years now with Freedom in Christ, I understand that was more about the guilt that was beginning to be built, even in that moment. And so I was probably 30 years old before I told anyone. Um, So I was walking through a trauma at nine years old, processing it all by myself. Fast forward to my teenage years, and I began a journey of trauma where a family member molested me for years. Again, I felt absolutely powerless. I felt afraid and I told no one. And the dirt and the shame piled up and piled up. I, as, as I said, I was probably 30 before I told anyone. Now, I continued to get good grades in school, I worked hard at home even taught Sunday school when I was a teenager. Um, On the outside, my life looked pretty normal. I was a good wife and mother and, and 
all of that sort of thing. But inside, inside, deep down inside, I was shame. I could not have identified it, it that for most of my life, but that was the truth. I was shame. So it was about 10 years ago that um, Lena and I were first introduced to freedom in Christ, and um, I began my journey to freedom. And it is a journey. It's not an event. It's a process of sanctification and a discovery of truth. Uh, I, there are many scriptures that I, I would say, oh, that's one of my favorites. But I think kind of my battle cry has become Jesus' words, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I began to discover his truth. Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Discovering him as truth, discovering his word as truth, learning to apply it to my life, began to change everything. But one of the most amazing um, parts of my freedom journey has been when I discovered Isaiah 62.2, where it says, And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. When I asked the Holy Spirit for my, what was my new, new name, he gave me two. He said, your name is beautiful and your name is pure. I am accepted by my creator who loves me unconditionally. I am secure in his declaration of who I am. And I rejoice that he has a purpose and a plan for my life. I am joyfully compelled now to share that with others. Uh, and, and to just, oh, the joy, the blessing, the wonder of partnering with our father as he sets the captives free. Our dear brother Derek used to say, We have a front row seat to the best game in town, and we do. So I want to share a couple of of those. There was a man who um, had a really rough childhood. He was not, uh, love was not unconditionally expressed to him. He was told over and over and over again that he would never amount to anything. Wasn't athletic. Uh, wasn't smart enough to go to college, wouldn't even be able to hold down an eight-hour job. When you hear those lies enough, you begin to believe them, and then your behavior follows. By the time he graduated from high school, he was a very angry, bitter, and unforgiving man. He entered the army And took that anger, bitterness with him. And carried it with him, those negative emotions, up into his 40s when he finally met Jesus. And Jesus' tender love began to uh, heal his broken heart, um, heal those damaged emotions. But there were still those lies. One of the lies he believed was that he couldn't. I can't do this, I can't do that, because he'd been told he couldn't. Ever since he was young, he'd wanted to build a small sailboat. He never tried, didn't believe he could. In his late 60s, he determined, after he began his journey with freedom in Christ, he determined he was going to build a boat. He researched and found the best plans got all the materials together, and he built a small wooden boat. It is a beautiful work of craftsmanship. And I like to call it the freedom boat. Lynn, my husband, is that man. I watched 
And I walked with him as he built that boat, as he discovered I can build a boat. Um, That gentleman that Dennis is his name that Neil was just talking about, um, when his wife contacted me, the reason that they wanted to contact uh, us was that they knew they have a homeless shelter and transitional living program in California. And they knew the missing component was freedom in Christ because of what, they, what Dennis had experienced. And so they wanted to know how they could bring it in. I went to California and I had a week of training. And at, at first it was going to be just their staff and volunteers. But then the students said, we want to be part of that also. So I met Tony, one of the students. Tony, I learned, had been in a coma two different times in his life. Once was because of a drug overdose. Another time was because he had been beaten in the head with a bat. He, at one point, he was paralyzed. The doctors did not know if he would ever recover. He lost his ability to read and write, to really be able to express himself. And when I met him, he was walking and he was functioning. And he could read a little bit, but, but really, really struggled with that. Speaking was sometimes labored, but he could speak. Um, so I had an assignment for the group. I wanted to ask them to read through what we call our statements of truth. It's a whole page of statements right out of scripture, who God is and why he came. But as I was about to ask them, I realized Tony will miss out because he won't be able to follow along with us reading this as a group. So I asked that at each table they would read it on their own. And then I would sit with Tony and I read a phrase and then he would read it. I read a phrase and then he would read it. There were our 12 statements on that page. About statement number four, I noticed I would read the phrase, he would read it, and then he would keep on going. So I let him go, and then I would help him with the words he didn't know or wasn't sure how to pronounce. About statement number seven, I wish I had a video. He looked up at me with this look of awe and wonder on his face. Tears rolling down his cheeks, and he said, I'm reading. I can read. We high-fived it, and we hugged and, and cried together, and then we went back, and he read through to the bottom of the page. And when he was done, he stood up and declared to the entire room, I can read. <laughs> I will never forget that experience. It was so powerful. The power of truth and belief in that, renouncing the lies. We were blessed to travel to um, Sierra Leone and West Africa in February to train 170 pastors, took them through a week of Freedom in Christ training. And <clears throat> wow, it was a powerful time. Some of that group were Shadonke's leaders, which was so exciting for us. One of the young men, we met with Shadanke's group of leaders afterwards, just Lynn and I. And so we, they were sharing with us. And Patrick, young pastor who had been, he was Muslim background, had been rejected by his family, had been living on the streets when Shadanke found him as a young boy, began to disciple him and care for him. He wanted to be a pastor. And Shadanke called him in one day and said, you cannot be a pastor until you get rid of that bitterness. You must go back to forgive your stepmother. He wanted to be obedient. So he went to the city of his stepmothers. He bought her some gifts and he went to her and he said, I forgive you. But he said, I didn't. I still was mad. I still had anger inside. While we went through the training with them, we actually took them through the steps to freedom in Christ, which Dr. Anderson has encouraged you to do tomorrow. The very day that they went through the steps, 
that night, because we were in the same town where his stepmom was, he said, I went to my stepmother and I said, I want you to know that today I have forgiven you from my heart. It changed his world, changed his ministry. And I believe it changed hers as well. And I want to leave you with this. Last year, uh, we were doing one of our trainings. Um, when, when people go online to our online university, one of the last things that they do, we have a four-day gathering we call a practicum. And the students that have been completed their on, online assignments then come together and we do some training. We take them through the steps or they take each other through the steps and so on. One of the attendees was a pastor that had come from Puerto Rico. He was probably my age or close to it, had been a pastor for many years, and also was the director or administrator of a church, I mean, a school. And so at the end, we asked them, as they're preparing now to return to their homes and maybe implement freedom in Christ in their, in their own context. And so we asked them to just share and we pray with them. He stood up in the middle of the room to share his prayer requests. And he stood there and he began to cry. I mean, he cried. It wasn't just a tear rolled down his cheek. He cried to the point that he dropped the mic. After probably at least two minutes, he brought the microphone back up, opened his mouth to speak, and the sobbing wave came over him again and he sobbed and sobbed and one of our guys went and just stood next to him with his arm around him and we were all praying and crying as well the microphone went down but when he brought it back up again through the sobbing he said he loves me he loves me We all were crying. We were clapping and cheering. And I think many of us were whispering, he loves me. He loves me. Emotional healing, spiritual healing, forgiven, I can forgive. He loves me. He loves you and he loves you. And that's what it's all about. Thank you, Jim. Oh, that's my name. I was on a radio program one time, and the man, I said, is there one last thing you'd like the people to know? If there was just one thing you'd want them to know, I said, I'd want them to know that God loves them. Remember uh, Touched by an Angel on Sunday night? Same message every week. God loves you. And uh, you would think, well, everybody knows that in the churches. Trust me, people, they don't. I mean, I, I would have assumed that years ago. I mean, I've, how many times are you going to read it in the Bible and not believe it? But inwardly, they question it. Uh, I mean, not some of them, almost all of them. Um, things you learn after years, you just it kind of surprises you in a way. You know, How many people sitting in prison have made a decision for Christ, think they've committed the unpardonable sin? Every one of them almost. And... Uh, that's one you better solve in your own understanding before you deal with people in this one because that in Hebrews chapter 6 comes back again and again and again on people's lives. It's uh, uh, the first call I got after Joanne's funeral last year was from Spanish House. Uh, it's a Spanish booksellers down in Miami, Florida. And every year they put on Expolite. It's a Spanish booksellers convention. I've been to it several years ago and in the past, but no travels for the seven years. And so they called me and said, uh, would you come next year? That would be last August now. And we'll cover all your expenses. That kind of surprised me. I said, well, sure. And because uh, normally you pay your way that or the publisher pays your way to go to it because you get to talk, talk to all the book distributors and et cetera in Latin America. So I put it on my calendar. Didn't hear anybody think for about six months. And then I got a call. Will these flights work? Yeah, sure. And I still didn't know what I was going down there for. 
And uh, didn't know until two days before. Actually, I didn't know then. But they gave me the schedule. And it was a whole bunch of interviews and whatever. But before it actually starts for all the other publishers come in, Spanish House has their own, uh, where you, they bring their authors forward to talk to all the uh, book distributors. Well, uh, David Eckelberger owns Spanish House. He started it years ago. Had two children of his own. Then he adopted two children. Uh, from Costa Rica, who became crooks. I mean, literally, crooks. There went my notes. Where'd they go? Anyway, (laughs) Um, uh, one was so bad, the the country exported him back to Costa Rica. He was actually brought up here, and the only language he knew was English. They dropped him off in Costa Rica. The other one was in jail for a year and a half. And uh, he got out. And uh, somehow or another, he just knew Christianity, the religion of his adopted parents, was the answer. But how? What do I do? And he looked down the bench, and there was a book with the cover torn off. He picked it up and read The Bondage Breaker. And uh, last August, uh, he took 20 minutes to introduce me and, and told his story of how he found his own freedom through the bondage breaker. Tim now is the president of Spanish House. I mean, I was surprised. I'll be honest with you, a little doubtful. I was asking the people there, how's this working out? Oh, I said, we love him. Humble man, you know, kind of a thing. But talk about the power of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? And um, found his total freedom uh, in Christ, going through the steps of freedom, just reading the bondage breaker. Uh, so it is a powerful thing. <clears throat> now let's look at our emotions if we can for a moment. <clears throat> the emotional nature, the mind is there. I've tried to help you realize, tried to help myself realize over the years that your emotions are essentially a product of your thought life. Uh, you can talk people into crying. You can talk people into laughing. It's just by how they think. And um, there, there it is. I put it down. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, that's so kind of you. I'm using hers. <laughs> um, trying to put this together when I was teaching at the seminary, two passages came together in a way I'd never seen them before. Very familiar to you, I'm sure. Uh, Ephesians, I mentioned earlier, uh, 4, 25. Speak the truth in love for members of one another. Being we but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Don't give the devil a opportunity or a literally a place First Peter 5, 7, cast your anxiety upon Christ because he cares for you. Be alert, be a sober spirit, for the devil is roaring around like a hungry lion seeking for someone to devour. Now, the first thing you learn in hermeneutics is nothing has meaning without context. And so if you come across a passage, don't give the devil a place or uh, cast your anxiety into Christ because he cares for you, etc. cetera, uh, for the devil's roaring around. And the context is anger and anxiety. Now, don't walk out of here saying anger and anxiety are somehow demonic. They are not. They're human emotions. But you may want to consider the fact that if I don't learn responsibly to deal with that emotional part of my life, I may be setting myself up to be spiritually vulnerable. I think that's legitimate. I think it's true. And uh, so the emotions play a very important part. I've heard in churches, and you have too, that uh, you can't trust your feelings Where did you read you could trust your thinking, for that matter? (laughs) But unfortunately, people interpret that to almost end up denying their feelings, which is not a healthy thing to do. I I think there are very important feedback that God has given to us in our life. Our emotional nature is created into who we are. And uh, somebody likened it to like an indicator light in the dash of your car. And uh, you're driving at night, it's really dark, and all of a sudden bright light comes on, says you have no oil pressure. I remember the analog days where the dial would go over, but now it goes on. It means you're about to change your engine. But anyway, it, uh, uh, now when that light comes on, it's kind of irritating. You can take a little ball-peen hammer and smash it. You know, there the light's out. That's indiscriminate expression. Or you can uh, put a duct tape over it so it doesn't shine in your eyes. That's suppression. Or you can acknowledge it and look under the hood. I think that's what God intends us to do. But just briefly looking at the other options, what's wrong with suppression? 
By the way, terminology-wise, repressed memories are an unconscious denial. There are people who have repressed memories. They don't have any memory of periods of their life. It's almost a guaranteed thing that they've experienced a major trauma in their life. That's called dissociation. Suppression is a conscious denial. There's two problems with that, essentially. One is, frankly, it's dishonest. How are you feeling? Fine. Are you mad? No. <laughs> in the total communicative process, studies have revealed that only about 7 or 8% is verbal, about 35% is behavioral, 55% is attitudinal. I'll say it another way. There's verbal and nonverbal communication, and when they don't match, which one do you believe? Nonverbal. Now, it's not that the verbal is important. In fact, I think that's why he says, speak the truth in love. Be angry. Uh, is, it's, it's critically important because truth of the matter is we pick up the nonverbal. We don't know what was going on. And so if you don't put some words to it, I make assumptions. Oh, he's mad at me because. And, uh, and communication begins to break down. So do relationships. You know, so uh, it's very important, I think, that we learn to just be honest about how we feel. You know, not to wear emotions on your sleeve, but just... So you can relate to people in an honest way. But it's also unhealthy. It's the basis for psychosomatic illnesses. Now, the context is sin, but when David said, when I kept quiet about my sin, my body wasted away with the fever heat of summer. And, uh, and finally, when I acknowledged my sin. So turn to God in a time when thou mayest be found, because surely in the flood of great waters you won't find him. It's not that he's not findable, but when you get emotionally overcome, you start doing irrational things, your recall is inhibited, and and you end up making kind of a fool out of yourself. So learning to be able to express that in an honest way before you blow the top you know, is a healthy way to live. Indiscriminate expression is just unhealthy for the other person. I got to get this off my chest. Blah. There, I feel better. Well, you do, but you just destroyed the other person. And so scripture has a lot to say about that as well. But the real issue is, is acknowledgement. And for us, it's before God. Uh, I'm not going to take the time here, but read Psalm 109 sometimes. It's an imprecatory psalm. And uh, David said, my enemies are exalted over me, but I'm in prayer. And this is his prayer. Point a wicked man over him. Let his children wander about and beg. You go, dear God, <laughs> what's that doing in the Bible? Well, that's the holy, inspired, inerrant word of God. That's exactly how you felt. You ever feel that way? Did you ever pray that way? David did. God inspired him to write it down. <laughs> God already know you feel that way? You know, see, who are we kidding, folks? God knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. If that kind of anger and frustration and pain is there, it's a good thing if you can dump that out to God, whom you know you're already forgiven for, then you won't have to live it out this way. And I think, I think that's the purpose for the psalm, to be honest with you. Job's uh, three friends have come to him and the second one has finished his little dissertation about how he's, he's suffering because it's something wrong with him. Job made a mistake, too. He tried to defend himself. God corrects that at the end. But, but uh, in responding back to one of his so-called friends at that time, he says, how um, painful are honest words. But what does your reproof mean? When the, the person in anger, the words of frustration belong to the wind. It's, it's such a... Fascinating little passage just stuck away that the uh, that kind of an emotional anxiety that comes over sometimes where we blurt out and have an emotional catharsis. It isn't what we say. The problem is we respond to what they say instead of responding to their feeling. And uh, and that's always a tragic thing in ministry because uh, the words of one in despair do belong to the wind. So don't focus on what they said, especially if it's little children who don't have much of a vocabulary. I hate you. And I said, no, that's just a point of frustration for him. And we, don't you say that to me, and how dare you say that? And I said, that's not the right response. Respond to the pain, the hurt. We're supposed to weep with those who weep, not instruct those who weep. It doesn't work. You know, but it's an interesting thing. I'm not saying you tolerate insolence from our kids. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you see people who are in deep pain and sorrow and loss in their life, and they kind of strike out, Try not to respond to that. I, I mean, just sit and listen for a moment. Let them have their moment of catharsis. Boy, another acclamation from God. Thank you very much. 
Preach it, Anderson. <laughs> it's like sitting beside the bedside of a loved one, and um, and you watch they watch a loved one, you know, slip off to eternity, and they turn to you. Why did God do this? Don't answer the question. Number one, you don't know why God did that. Number two, the words of one in despair belong to the wind. You know, let them have that moment that that of of expression of pain and whatever else in their life is so important. And then also knowing our emotional limits. There are sometimes laid on me, man. I can take anything. And other times, feed me first or let me sleep. Wait a minute. You're not supposed to let the sun go down your wrath. That's your wrath. You can go down on the problem night after night. You know, come back here. We got to solve this now. No, you've already lost it. You know, find another time. But find another time and appoint it and and deal with the issues. But when you're dealing with emotions like this in present time, that's one thing. The other issue is, what about past events, past traumas that have left you emotionally wounded? When I uh, taught at the seminary, I, uh, uh, my class on counseling, pastoral care, I had everybody get in groups of three and let her off A, B, C. And as soon as they were in a comfortable group, I rotated them. A, go one you know, seat this way, and B, you go that way. I wanted to mix them up. And, uh, and they, they responded to a lot of questions, then I rotated them some more. I just got the class mixed together, and um, I was sitting by one girl, and I said, describe your family from the age of 8 to 12. And, man, she just turned to me, boop, 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 on my shoulder. Why are you making us do this? Well, I have no idea. And, uh, well, she's an adult child of an alcoholic. I mean, that's a label that's been put on her. She's actually a child of God. But she had never really dealt with that pain in her past. And uh, not only that, any time that somebody asked her to recall that period of time in her life, she wanted to bolt out of there. Uh, <clears throat> when they were all done, I had everybody close their eyes. I said, just be comfortable for more. What do you think? What are you feeling right now? Put one word to describe your feeling. Had everybody share it. Most of them was excited, affirmed, you know. For most of them, it was kind of a fun, positive experience. But there was always a few scared, intimidated. You know, what's coming down the pike kind of a thing. And uh, one of those people was a young gal came by the next morning. She said, I was the one who didn't have a good experience last night. I said, what's in your past? Well, pause for a while. She said, well, we were on the mission field and we came home and my older brother committed suicide. And the family literally shut down. I said, you don't talk about it ever as a family? No. I said, do you like living that way? No. I said, well, what you going to do about it? And uh, so I helped her for a bit first, but she actually went and pulled her sister aside. I said, we need to talk about my brother. Okay, but don't talk to mom. Went to her dad. We need to talk about my brother. All right, but don't talk to mom. Went to mom. And the family started to function again. And the gal, who was an adult child of alcoholic, it was a tough semester for her, I suppose, in some ways. Truth of the matter is, that's her ministry today. And uh, she was helping others now that she found help for herself. Here's the point. Everybody here has had experience. Everybody's got a bad experiences in their life. And it leaves wounds for people. And again, you're not in bondage to that wound it's really to the lies that you believe because of the trauma in your past. And, uh, and then some event comes along presently and triggers that event. And that emotion comes out. I call it a primary emotion. It's just my own terminology because it's, it's just kind of under the surface and laying there. You could be so simple as to have a childhood bully named Ralph. And Ralph terrorized you every afternoon. And about 20 years ago, it has no effect on you today. Really? Guy walks up to you, hi, I'm Ralph. Ralph. <laughs> now, you don't go to a 10 or even a 5 probably, but you just kind of think for a moment, give him the benefit of the doubt, he's not the real Ralph. Uh, but if your spouse says, well, let's name our first boy Ralph, would you? Ayatollah Khamenei would come to your mind, but not Ralph. I mean, and... Uh, I could talk about rape, for instance, and talk about some case studies and whatever else. The emotional response right now is somewhere between 2 and maybe 10. 
two, you don't know it'd be a misrape. You don't like the subject. It's a horrible thing. What a, you know, but you don't know anybody in, around you that's been raped. But if you were raped three weeks ago, you're in tears right now. Just because I said the word. Everybody has experiences. And then some present event comes along and triggers that. And uh, generally speaking, the population handles that by staying away from events that will trigger that. I'm not going to see that kind of a movie. I'm not going to go to that. I don't want to talk about this subject. If you're going to talk about that, I'm getting out of here. Uh, you could say something with some friends, maybe a little controversial. Somebody gets mad and walks off. What would you say to them? I don't know. You don't know. Because you just touched a hot point. And there's something like that in the past. It doesn't end there because when something triggers it, that emotion comes up. But then you kind of, secondary emotion that comes from that. It's kind of a combination of processing it now. But if you think about it, if you've had a lot of those trigger points in your life, your world can start shutting down. There's places I can't go, people I can't see. You know, I, I know people today who won't go certain places because so-and-so may be there. And uh, your world can start shutting down. So what do we do about that? Um, well, is there some way that we have a means by actually resolving that? Well, here's what happened, folks. When you had those experiences in your past with your dad, like Len and Jan talked about, and... Uh, and like Daryl talked about with the father and father wounds and all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, those events are just, you know, they're, they're part of our life. And, uh, but are we, like Daryl said, just a product of our past? No. We're new creations in Christ. But at that time, you process that. You process it in your mind. That's how you dealt with it. You didn't have Christ at that time, maybe. Or you didn't know what to deal with it. And now you're a new creation in Christ. You actually have a chance to go back and look at that event again. You may not want to initially. Uh, we'll share how in a second or so. But, but uh, uh, it is still there and, and can still haunt you and still determine what you do or where you go and what you don't go or what you don't talk about. And I said, but I'm not just a product of that. I'm a product of the work of Christ in the past. Truth of the matter is you can reprocess that now, but not as a victim anymore. But as somebody, by the grace of God, has actually been set free from that, made a new creation in Christ. That's just a flesh pattern in your, in your brain. And uh, uh, so we always have the privilege to do that. Uh, let me give you a couple of illustrations. This gal was sent home from the mission field. Uh, she was facing a nervous breakdown. She was with her husband. But she wasn't sent home. She was actually sent to Biola University to attend my class at the seminary at the time. And, uh, and I met with them. And uh, uh, she went through the class. And if she was here today, because she wrote me the nicest letter, she really found her freedom. I mean, she really, truly knew, knows now who she is in Christ and is a child of God and found her freedom. Then she went home to this dysfunctional family and found out that her father was carrying on a homosexual affair with a stranger. She wasn't sure her mother even knew about it. Heard that from her brother. And uh, they came back that fall and to take some more classes. And they met with me. And uh, they said, what do we do? Should I tell my mom? He, she may not know anything about it. He could have AIDS, for instance. And uh, I said, well, before we look at that, I said, let's put this in perspective. Aren't you glad you found that out after you went through the class this summer? Whew, she said, if I'd walk home into that, I think I'd have stepped over the line. I said, secondly, knowing that now about your family, what does that do to your heritage? She started to answer, and then she said, nothing. Just like nothing. Do you get it, folks? Who are you? You're a child of God. He's your heavenly father. This is not pie-in-the-sky theology. This is the essence of life. He's my life now. Old things have passed away. Don't have to affect me anymore. Victim no more. Uh, I've been set free from that. Here's the interesting thing. 
Every child of God is alive and free in Christ. How many are living like, like that? How many even know it? That's the real tragedy to me. I said, I hope in your discipleship concept that you filter in a very important issue. That salvation as applied to the believer is past, present, and future tense. You have been saved if you're a child of God, but you're also being saved. All three tenses are used in your New Testament. You have not experienced the totality of salvation yet. That won't happen until you're a resurrected body in the presence of God. Now, I personally believe that God has given me the Holy Spirit a seal, a pledge unto the day of redemption. Uh, You won't find anything in early church literature where people would say, I was saved 20 years ago. What would be appropriate to say, I received Christ 20 years ago. Sanctification is also past, present, and future tense. Did you know that? All three tenses apply to the believer. You have been saved, you're being sanctified, someday you you shall fully be sanctified. Now you can divide the church community up right here, unfortunately. Past tense, sanctification, is uh, called positional sanctification. Present tense is progressive. Pretty much the holiness movement, Nazarene churches, a lot of assemblies of God, those kind of churches, kind of holiness. In fact, some will kind of claim, boy, that's our doctrine. But they all focus on past tense. I actually had a man one time say to me that I'm totally sanctified. I haven't sinned in 20 years. I said, if I asked your wife that, would she agree? He didn't know how to respond to that. And uh, the problem with that is if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. And, uh, but I grew up kind of with a Reformed theology perspective, and the whole focus there was on present tense. Progressive sanctification, essentially making it synonymous with growth. It was almost like they were interchangeable. What's wrong with that? They kind of ignore positional sanctification, kind of, well, that's just positional truth, as though it's not real truth. Folks, that's real truth. Positional sanctification is the basis for progressive. I'm not trying to become a child of God. I'm a child of God who's becoming like Christ. That makes sense, folks? Took me 400 pages in the common made holy to write that, so you got the bargain. (laughs) I tell you what, that book was stuck to the shelf. Nobody reads 400 page books on sanctification. So they narrowed it down to 320. I don't even remember what the title was. That lasted six months. That was glued to the shelf. And uh, so I did a Reader's Digest version 130 pages. (laughs) They didn't sell either. And uh, (laughs) I said, you know, well, you should be interested because that's God's will for your life, your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, to become like Jesus. But it's a hard sell today. Isn't that sad, folks? It's really sad. You know, how to make a million bucks. Well, you can do very well with that book, I suppose. But it kind of shows where we're at in our spirituality. Now, here's my point, getting back to uh, freeing ourselves. That, knowing that, that I'm a child of God, new creation in Christ, I can look at that pain back there, by itself won't solve the emotional wound for you. What will? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. It will. And let me just take a few minutes to look at that because it's so very, very critical. It's required by God, even in the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive me, how? As I have forgiven others. You may not be asking for very much. Why is that? Because your relationship with God is inextricably bound up in your relationship with your fellow man. Everything begins essentially here. We love because he first loved us. We're to be merciful as God has been merciful to us. We are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. So it all begins here first. So if this isn't right, then the living it out this way is not going to be right either. It can't be. Uh, so if you want to help relationships or like marriage, I said, marriage counseling, is a, I left that behind years ago. Have two couples in squabbling in each other. That'll never work. That's like teaching two people on crutches how to dance. <laughs> Ain't going to work. You got to help me individually first to get individually free. Then you can deal with them as a couple, which, which we do in setting our marriage free. 
how many times should we forgive, Peter says? Up to seven times? He said, up to 70 times seven. Now, don't keep a pocket calculator and tick off 490 and pull out the gun and shoot the bum. You know, the idea is you continue to forgive. He said, and, uh, and then he gave you, you know, the story I'm sure you know well of. But uh, when he begged for mercy, now three concepts that are critical. Justice, mercy, grace. Justice is rightness, fairness. God is a just God, can never be. He's always righteous, never change, never change. If you meted out justice, you'd be giving people what they deserve, wouldn't you? Now, thankfully, if God did that to us right now, we would all deserve hell. But God, being rich in mercy, mercy is actually not giving you what you deserve. That didn't change God's justice. That had to be satisfied, and it was when Christ took our place on the cross. And so justice was served, but mercy is what we needed. You have been saved not by deeds done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So you throw yourself upon the court of the law and beg for mercy. What you're doing is you're acknowledging, I deserved justice, but I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking that you don't give me what I deserve. That is not grace. Grace is actually given you what you don't deserve, given you what you don't deserve. So how do we relate to other people? Same way. Be merciful as Christ has been merciful. Don't give people what they deserve, but don't stop there. Take the next step. Give them what they don't deserve. That's grace. Love one another. That is how we are intended to live. And so forgiveness is so critical. Let me point out a few things about it. Forgiveness is not forgetting. You say, well, God forgets. God couldn't forget if he wanted to. He's omniscient. But the Bible says, I'll remember your sin no more. That's true. But that doesn't mean forget. What that literally means is, I will not take the past and use it against you. I will remove it far from me as the east is to the west. So when you say to somebody, well, two years ago you did this, you know what you just said? I haven't forgiven you. I'm still throwing the past up against you. Um, Forgetting is never a means to forgiveness. But it is a long-term byproduct of it. And so once we have forgiven that person before God, uh, forgiveness is not tolerating sin. I think we need to understand that as well. Uh, I used to teach a class on ethics, and uh, it was really interesting because we would, I would lecture for four weeks, and then we'd have the class divide and take very, various issues that we have in society. And, and they would, for three years away, brought in this girl who uh, was the director of a home for battered wives and abused kids. And I went up to her, I said, this is a great ministry you're doing. I said, do you get a lot of support from churches? No, I don't. Really, why not? Oh, I couldn't believe that. I was really surprising to me. I said, they're all over in the city here, but you don't know where they're at. They can't reveal where they're at. And they can't publish their ministries. And uh, I said, why don't you get support? I said, who, think, who do you think's in our shelters? They come from some of our churches, and frankly, from some of our Christian leadership families, even, if you can imagine that. That's, always, that's a painful thing to hear that. You know, on whose side are we on here? You know, I said, even the society out there recognizes you need to turn to the abusers. Why? Because the abusers have been abused. You'll never help an abuser by allowing them to continue in their abuse. I say turn them in. Not because I'm vindictive. That's not the point. The point of it is you can't resolve this thing if you allow it to continue and fester on. And you have to be on the side of the one who's, who's, who's being abused. I mean, you know, come on, church, where are we at? He said, but it could damage my reputation. Haven't you learned from the Catholics? Can you imagine the tragedy they're going through right now because they covered up and lied about abuse? It's happening in our churches too, folks. And uh, that's not right. I mean, we need some interventions in these kind of things and, and come to the side of the abused people and, and help them and stop that kind of abuse. And please, don't, that's not a vindictive statement. We're running out of time here. Um, how do we forgive from the heart? There's a critical thing. And how are you going to forgive as Christ forgiven you? How did Christ forgive you? He took upon himself the sins of the world. 
And so essentially, when you forgive another person, you're agreeing to live with the consequences of their sin. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, you're right. Of course it's not fair. But you'll have to anyhow. Everybody here is living with the consequences of Adam's sin. Their only real choice is to do that in the bondage of bitterness or the freedom of forgiveness. And so you do this for your sake, and I beg of it for your sake. The Bible says if you... Brother, has something, if you've done something against your brother and you go to church, leave your offering, you go be reconciled. So if you've offended somebody else, go to that person. They've offended you, don't go to that person, go to God. It's an issue between you and God. That's why I can set somebody free right in my office. And it's most times it's not advisable to go to that person. Let go, folks. Let God deal with that person. Revenge is mine. He'll take care of that. Justice will be right in the end. Right now, accept God's provision for you and find the freedom of forgiveness. Be sure to pick up the steps to freedom before tomorrow morning. And uh, they're in our table back there. If you don't have any change or can't afford them, we'll give you one, okay? But God bless. See you tomorrow morning. That's it for today's episode. Make sure to download Untangling Addiction by Marcus D. Carvalho about the scientific background behind addiction from a disciple who's also a medical professional, and he has an expertise in this area. Download this resource at discipleship.org/ebooks. Thanks for listening.